0: It is great to be here this morning as I get this microphone on I just remembered when I was in school I had a professor that wore one of these they always make me nervous because between classes he went to the bathroom and he left it on we're all sitting in the class he whistled Eddie I just love that song thank you guys thank you so much for playing it Uh, It is great to be here with you this morning. Um, I understand for the last several weeks you've been talking about different spiritual disciplines, prayer and fasting. And I've been asked to talk to you about justice and human trafficking and the underlying principle that animates these disciplines of advocacy. For the past ten years... Um, I've had just the great joy of working on the front lines of combating human trafficking. I worked for a group called International Justice Mission, which is a non-profit group, and I lived in India to do that. only got to be there for a over three years, but it was amazing. And International Justice Mission goes by the nickname IJM, and they uh, work to rescue the oppressed, to hold the perpetrators accountable by prosecuting them providing aftercare for the victims, and working for structural transformation, real change in the culture. When I came back from India, I began doing the same type of work here in the United States, and I work for the Civil Rights Division of the U.S. Department of Justice in their human trafficking prosecution unit, and it is a great joy. And because I love it so much, I need to tell you that everything I share here today is my own. Uh, None of it reflects on the Department of Justice or my employer. So to keep my job, I need to tell you that. It's awesome to be in a room without air conditioning. When um, Pastor Washington told me your church had no AC, I was like, yes. Our church in India had no air conditioning, and it went for hours, and it was so hot. It was like a weight loss program and a worship experience all wrapped in one. It was awesome. So, when I was a freshman in college, um, I met this remarkable young woman that ultimately agreed to be my wife. She was amazing, and she earned the name, the lovely and talented Linda Marie. Now, she was two years older than me, so when I was a freshman, she was a junior. She knew everyone, and I was just new on campus. She was a varsity athlete, and an award-winning scholar, and I was just really glad she paid any attention to me. One day when we first started dating, she um, invited me to watch the Super Bowl with her. And I didn't really care much about the game. It was the Broncos and the 49ers. But I cared a lot about seeing Linda. So she gave me the address of the house to go to, and it was a house I had never been to before. And when I got there, I noticed it was a pretty large house. And as I walked up, someone must have thought that I looked out of place because they looked at me and they said, what are you doing here? And then I looked up and saw the sign. It was the university president's house. And I immediately thought, she's pranking me. I'm going to get thrown out of the university president's house, which only made me like her a little bit more. And as I tried to fumble with my words and come up with something to say, Linda's head pops out of the front door. With this big smile, she turns to the guy and says, he's with me. Those became four of my favorite words. He is with me. I got to go inside. I got access into the house. I got to watch the game, all because I was with her. You see, I think we live in a world that's transfixed on nouns and verbs. We like nouns. We like stuff, people, places, and things. Super Bowls and important people. And we like action. We like verbs. We like the power and the adventure of it. They do things. Like the company hired me. Or they fell in love. Or I bought a new car. And this is where most of the world lives They live in this disconnected world of nouns and verbs. But everything changes with one preposition with. It brings meaning and relationship to the nouns and the verbs of our lives. Think about it. What's more fun, going to an amusement park by yourself or with someone else? It's the same rides. Same overpriced fried food, same silly games, but it's so much more fun with someone. It makes all the difference. I've gotten to travel the world. I'm, I'm, really, I'm really fortunate in that way, and I've seen lots of people talk passionately about human trafficking. They've given me the nouns and the verbs of human trafficking. They tell us that 27 million people are trafficking victims in the world today. And then other people disagree and say, it's no, 20.9 million. Nobody really knows the exact number, but everyone agrees it's far too many. They tell us to call it modern-day slavery, and then other people say, no, we don't like that term. But they're all describing the same thing. They tell us about the manner and means that perpetrators use to exploit their victims. Fraud, deception, threats, abuse, manipulation of debts, and all sorts of psychological coercion. We learn about the different business models of traffickers. They tell us about the laws that are in place to protect the vulnerable. We hear about ending demand, identifying risk factors, and the non-prosecution of victims. These people teach us about public policy and changes in the law that we need or things that would help us in the future. And when we're just overwhelmed with all these nouns and verbs, all these facts, We understand that traffic is not about road congestion, it's about coercion. And all of these things are important, but what I want you to know is that slavery does exist in our world today. It's not a historical blight, it's a modern-day problem that requires a coordinated, intense solution. But you can learn about the facts of human trafficking through a Google search on the internet machine. You can get all those nouns and verbs. I want to talk to you all for a moment about the width of injustice and why it matters. And as a community of faith, I think we have to wrestle to figure out how do we deal with the fact that injustice is real. The wisest man that ever lived decided to do just that. King Solomon looked out over injustice, all the things in the world. And here's what he said about it in Ecclesiastes 4, verse 1. He said, Again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed. They have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors, and they have no comforter. You see, Solomon was describing a specific type of oppression. One that deals with power. Because an oppressor abuses power to take something that rightfully belongs to someone else, either their life, their liberty, or the fruit of their love and labor. Psalm 9, chapter, uh, verse 10, promises that the Lord will never leave or forsake them. And Psalm 10 says, You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them. You listen to their cry. Defending the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. You see, I believe that God is with the slave, the hurting and the oppressed. He will never leave them or forsake them. He cares enough about them to be present with them right now, right where they are, hearing their cries and wiping their tears because their pain is is real. And God was with a woman named Shanti. Shanti was a slave in a rice mill in India. And like many others she was also a parent. Shanti had a beautiful 12-year-old daughter. Her daughter she was a slave too in the rice mill. Shanti hated working for her owner who took from her the very dignity of her labor and freedom. And one day she decided to escape. But with absolutely no resources, and after years of isolation, it wasn't really hard for Shanti's owner to find her. He tracked her down, captured her, brought her back to the rice mill, and beat her publicly in front of the rest of the slaves to make an example of her. And then he put her back to work. You see, the owner had power and he abused that power to control another person for his profit. And I'll tell you that over the last decade of doing this work, I've noticed a tragic trend, that while this injustice may be initially motivated by profit, controlling other people often leads to more depraved evils, and sexual abuse and violence as a means of control always seems to lurk in the shadows. At at the end of an interview with some investigators with IJM, almost as an afterthought, after telling her story of being forced to work, Shanti mentioned her 12-year-old daughter. And with the tears of a mother's heart, she described how her daughter had been taken away from her for three days. She had been locked in the motor shed room at the edge of the compound. Shanti didn't know where her daughter was, only that she was missing. And it was in that motor shed room that the owner and the machine driver tore the girl's clothes and shattered her innocence. After the three-day ordeal was over, she was returned to her mother's arms, and they cried together. The owner and the machine driver came back numerous times to abuse them again. I think that Shanti knows what King Solomon was talking about. She cried the tears of the oppressed, and there was no one there to comfort her. But I want to tell you that Shanti and the millions of other slaves in the world today, when they cry, those cries do not go unheard. They are not nameless statistics. They are people that were fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God, and they are to be free because God wants them free. God hears their cries, and he wants them rescued. And the fact that God is with them should come as no surprise. Consider the patriarch Joseph, also a human trafficking victim. He was sold by his brothers for 20 secles of silver and then he was sold again. And the Scripture, as it's recounting the story, merely tells us that God was with him at each turn. When he was sold again to Potiphar, the Scripture tells us that God was with him. When he was unjustly imprisoned for a felony crime he did not commit, it says, but the Lord was with him. You guys may be asking the same question I ask, which is, if God cares and is with them, Why doesn't he stop the injustice? Why does he allow the suffering at all? These are good questions, and there are answers. We can't unpack the question completely this morning, but I think we can examine it from one angle. Let's look at Jesus' conversation with a legal scholar, and I think we can catch a glimpse of God's plan to have his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Turn with me if you want to Luke chapter 10. I'm going to read from verse 25. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. You know from that first line, this is going to be a great story. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Then Jesus replies, what is written in the law? how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Do this, and you will live. I ask questions for a living in court, and this passage gives me great pause. Because the lawyer here thought he was being clever. Lawyers like to ask questions. And sometimes they even like the answers. But Jesus had artfully set this guy up because he knew that we lawyers are an arrogant lot. And we cannot resist asking another question. And that's exactly what this guy does. So when we pick it up in verse um, 29, it says, But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed on the other side of the road. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went down and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. I know this is a really familiar story to a lot of folks, but I think it is so powerful. One of the things that strikes me about it is that all three men saw the naked, beaten man. Gone from this parable is any chance for anyone to say they just didn't see it. They didn't know about it. The priest and the Levite cannot say, you know that road from Jerusalem to Jericho? It's a busy road. It was really crowded, lots of blind curves. I had no idea that guy was in the ditch. Likewise, we can't say that we don't know about the injustice and the pain in our community or in the world at large. We see it. We hear about it. We read about it. It is streamed constantly to the mobile devices we carry with us everywhere we go. We cannot claim ignorance. I also noticed that the Samaritan came to where the man was. That is, he dared to draw near. He went to be with the victim. And there's that powerful preposition again, linking the nouns and verbs of this parable. He saw the injustice and the suffering and stepped toward it instead of stepping away from it. And God's example to us here is the incarnation itself. It's the Christmas story where God saw us in our sin and chose to cross the street, chose to draw near to us. He stepped down and became incarnate. And in a few short months, I imagine that this sanctuary and many others will be filled with wonderful music shouting the refrain, Emmanuel, God is with us. And that's why that great liturgical refrain, May the Lord be with you and also with you, has such power. There's also nothing in this story to suggest that the the Samaritan was uniquely equipped for this situation. Nothing to suggest he was in a better situation to deal with the man's problems than the Levite or the priest. He wasn't a law enforcement officer. No one suggested he was an EMT or have gone to specialized training to help in naked roadside interventions. You know, we all just assume that someone else is better prepared, someone else can help, someone else will do it, and we walk by. But like the Samaritan, we can at least take take the person somewhere to get the help. A friend uh, recently sent me a quote on Twitter, and so I don't know who to attribute this quote to other than the Twitter, I guess. Listen to this. I like this. Jacob cheated. Peter had a temper. David had an affair. Noah got drunk. Jonah ran from God. Paul committed murder. Gideon was insecure, and Miriam gossiped. Martha worried. Thomas doubted. Sarah was impatient. Elijah was moody. Moses stuttered, and Zacchaeus was short. Abraham was old and Lazarus was dead. God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. I love that. We're all qualified to cross the street and be with the suffering. All of us. And it's worth noting that being with the victim required some sacrifice. There's nothing... In this parable, that says the Samaritan had nothing else to do that day no appointments, no agenda. He was going somewhere. He had tasks to complete. He wasn't somehow uniquely freed up from his life to be with someone. Because engaging with others takes time, it imposes on our limited resources. And let's be honest. Sometimes it's difficult loving the folks in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in the world, and even the people we sit across from at dinner. But we have a great example. We have Jesus. Because when God came to be with us in the stink of our sin, he paid with his own son's blood to rescue us from the slavery of those sins. When the lovely and talented Linda Marie and I, when we moved to India, God was with us. Linda was eight months pregnant with our second child when we landed. And everybody told us that not only was going to India career suicide, not only was I putting my family at risk, but we'd never be able to make a difference in the problem anyway. And Linda will tell you that we felt compelled to go when we did. And when the time came for Linda to give birth, she was in labor. I was actually putting together the crib we had just gotten. And like every hour in Chennai, India, it was rush hour, and I couldn't get a taxi cab. When I finally got one, we're dashing to the airport at a dead stop. I kid you not, cows in the street were passing our cab. And I thought for a moment, I've already seen one kid be born. I've got a Leatherman, a scarf, and a bottle of water with the label Diet Agua. I'm trying to figure out how could I MacGyver this delivery in the cab. Fortunately for Linda, we made it to the hospital. And our son James was delivered quickly without the benefit of even an Advil. And rejoicing, this grand rejoicing over creation's first breath with our son James was quickly quickly interrupted when things started to go terribly wrong. James was fine, but the lovely and talented was not. She lost a tremendous amount of blood very quickly. She went into shock. Her eyes were rolling back in her head. She began convulsing on the table. And I dashed for the doctors, but they didn't know what to do. And this crippling chaos seemed to just paralyze everyone in the room. And as they worked to get things under control, I suggested to the doctors that she's lost so much blood, she needs a transfusion. And the doctors there told me, no, she doesn't. No, she doesn't. She'll be fine. And after about another hour or so passed, I went back to them, armed with the medical knowledge I learned with my Boy Scout first aid merit badge, and I told them, she needs blood. And they agreed. No one was willing to articulate in words what everyone was thinking at that moment. They then asked me, did you bring any blood with you? And I said, what are you talking about? This is the best hospital in the city. You told me you had a blood bank. They said, we do, but you don't want to use it. So I called the two people I knew in India at that time, and I said, this is an emergency. Linda needs blood. Help me. And I raced downstairs to where they draw blood. But it was time to close. They were shutting the doors. They said that their shift had ended and they would be back tomorrow. I shut the door behind me. I blocked the exit and told them that no one was leaving. I don't know if it was my words or my face, but something got communicated to them. And they didn't argue. They took two units of blood from me. And as they, after they took those two units, these strangers started showing up like angels, introducing themselves to me, shaking my hand, and opening up their arms to give life-giving blood for my wife. They stopped what they were doing. They crossed the street to be with us. Linda and I were figuratively in a ditch. We needed help. And in this massive demonstration of provision, blood was being poured out from strangers to meet a need that we were powerless to meet on our own. And the imagery of that was not lost on me even in the moment. Once the drip of blood started, the doctors told me in a sober moment that she may not live through the night and that I needed to figure out what to do with the baby. I looked at Linda, and she was completely white and non-responsive. And I knew in my heart, they may be right. So I went out into the hallway of this hospital, half a world away from everything that was familiar to me. It was dark and quiet, and I can tell you that I have never in my life, felt so alone and scared. In some small measure, perhaps I felt a bit of what Joseph or Shanti felt, in that I didn't feel like God was with me, but I can tell you he was. I prayed. I prayed that God would let Linda live. I begged God to let Linda live. I told God, I said, God, she deserves to live. I mean, I have this cool job. I get to go bust through doors and rescue slaves. But she, she came on faith. She could be an educator and a mom anywhere. You must let her live. She is so faithful. She deserves to live. And in that moment, I felt God speak in my heart in a way I never had before. And he said, No, no, she does not deserve to live. He said, I am God. I love her more than you do. And I give out of my goodness and riches, not because you deserve it, because you don't. You don't earn my favor by moving to the developing world. There are no spiritual brownie points. I give out of my grace because I am good, not you. This is not what I wanted to hear. I was actually hoping that God would say there has been a great cosmic mistake and I'm dispatching legions of angels immediately to fix it. John, I'm so sorry, and I will comp your next prayer. But God didn't do that because he wanted to get something straight from the very beginning of our journey in India and that it is not about us, it is all about him. Although I thought there were less painful ways to learn that lesson. (sighs) God's not a spiritual vending machine that I put in my token of obedience and take out the blessing of my choice. He's in charge. And he's generous. He's a good God. Linda made it through the night, and then she made it through the next night, and then the next, and there were lots of complications, and she was really, really weak for a very long time. We didn't know then the miracle that God was preparing for us through the pain and the cost of crossing the street to be with our friends in India. He taught us to be dependent on him and not our wit, wisdom, or talent, which I thought we had a lot of. He made us put our dreams of having other children on the altar. He derailed our schedule. And oddly and painfully, he turned us into people in need instead of people providing for the needs of others. Forced humility. He was up to something. He was up to something big. Because at the time, the path, the light to our path was dim, and we walked in darkness. But in hindsight, we see with pure light. We see that God built IJM offices all over India. That thousands were rescued. That perpetrators were convicted. Convictions came. And a medically impossible miracle baby came to join our family in 2010. And he is with us here today. God is good. You know, one of the authentic joys that I have as a dad is reading C.S. Lewis's Narnia stories to my kids. And I just, I just love... The look of anticipation and joy on their faces when wide-eyed they hear the first description of Aslan. Lucy and her siblings are there, and Lucy asks, afraid, is Aslan safe? And do you remember the response? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. Crossing the street to be with others may not be safe. But if we cross with God, it will be worth it. Let me look back at Luke chapter 10 as we end this parable. In verse 36, Jesus asks the legal expert, after telling him this story, which of these men do you think was the neighbor of the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The lawyer was trapped. Jesus had asked a question to which there was only one answer, the one who had mercy on him. Go and do likewise. Go love your neighbors. Go love strangers, foreigners, immigrants. Go love orphans in Uganda like the Kaiser family. And maybe even go love the people that we have to spend Thanksgiving with. You know, oddly, it is our unwillingness to go and do likewise that really angers God. Because God is not ambivalent about the issues of injustice, He cares. And Scripture talks a lot about it. In fact, God is passionate about justice. He's passionate about caring for the oppressed. And if God is passionate, we should get passionate about it too. Because we are called to have the same attitude as that of Jesus Christ. We are called to be his ambassadors. We're called to care about what he cares about. And if he cares about the suffering in the world, then we need to as well. Isaiah 59 has a powerful lesson for us. It says, So justice is driven back... And righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets, and honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. You see, what appalls God is that we're not there. God is with those who suffer, and He's with us, and His plan to rescue His people is to use us. He wants us, as flawed as we are, as ill-equipped as we are, to participate with Him in this remarkable work of rescue, restoration, and transformation. I recently um, had a chance to talk to Jesus about this very issue. I was in Costa Rica doing a law enforcement training for their prosecutors and judges on human trafficking. And after I was finished, I had to catch a cab to the airport. And in, in my cab, I butchered the Spanish language to have a conversation with my driver who told me his name was Jesus, which means Jesus. And so I had an hour, so I thought I'd ask Jesus some questions. <laughs> I said, Jesus. Should my wife and I get a new house? And Jesus turned to me and said, Why? Is the one you're in now broken? And I said, Jesus, what do you think about slavery and suffering? He said he hated it. I said, Jesus, what should be done? And Jesus said, it should be stopped. I said, Jesus, who should stop it? He said, Everyone. I said, wow, this is great. Can I go back to America and share this with my friends? And Jesus looked at me and said, I I don't care. (laughs) Micah 6.8 tells us that our call is to seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. In the Great Commission, in Matthew 28, it says, therefore, go into the world, go into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And then the promise, the great promise that comes. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age, with us. God was also with Alice. Alice was a young woman that applied to be an administrative assistant at the International Justice Mission in India when I worked there. And during her interview, it became clear to me that Alice was completely overqualified for the job for which she was applying. And there was something really special about her. I couldn't put my finger on it, but I knew in that moment she had to be on our team. I wasn't going to let her slip away. She ended up becoming a consistent voice, standing at raids, speaking truth to power, and watching this tiny, quiet young lady, speak to power was, was like watching David and Goliath, both in the size differential and the courage. And it was Alice that was with uh, Shanti when Shanti stood up and told the truth about what had happened to her daughter and to her. You see, Alice chose to cross the street of her culture and to risk her safety to be with Shanti. And the police heard they took action And they were rescued from slavery. And his kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven. (laughs) You see, I actually believe that we will live differently if we really believe that God is with us. If we really believe that we are his temple and his spirit dwells within us, we will behave differently. We will talk differently to our spouse on the way to church. We will talk differently to our partner when we're alone because we're not alone because God is there too. He is with us. We'll behave differently on dates and in class and in work because God is there. I believe the fight against human trafficking is worth crossing the street and being with the victims. I believe that being a voice for the voiceless matters. And I believe that this is a fantastic time to be alive. Never before has the world had so many resources. And never before have we had such a keen understanding of the world's need. This is our moment. This is a great time to be following God. I think he wants us to be with him and with others. And I don't know about you all, but I don't want to drift up to the dock of death safely and comfortably, and with a padded retirement account. I want to bust through those doors. I want to sprint the finish. I want to battle. I want to fight. And maybe even see human trafficking end in our generation. It's possible. It's possible if we live linking the nouns and verbs with the preposition that has power, that is God with us. And if you're interested in learning more about these things, if you're interested more about IJM, as Pastor Washington said, there are a bunch of books and materials and and cards out there. You can learn more about what that organization does. But there are lots of other organizations, too, that are out there serving. In fact, there's a family with us here today that does aftercare for for victims in Guatemala. My wife and I met them when we were vacationing in Guatemala last year. And let me tell you what, if you've ever met a family that just leaks Jesus... It's Chad and Marlena Smith. They can talk to you about it. You can follow people and get information about what's happening in your city and in this culture about human trafficking. They're all over the Internet. Pray, support, send, go, and most importantly, love the people that are just right in front of you. And Scripture reveals this awesome, awesome ending. That when we stand before God, we do not stand on our own. God welcomes us covered in his costly grace that forgives us of our sins and gives us access to eternal life. Not through our merit, not through our service, not even because we crossed the street to be with the oppressed, but because of him alone. And when we stand at the gates of heaven, like I stood in front of the university president's front door, we have no right to enter. We don't even deserve to be alive. But God sticks his head out, and he smiles, and he says, he's with me, she's with me, and we enter. Praise God, and may the Lord be with you.
1: your life and as you see injustice in the world may you see with God as you respond this week to the words that you've heard to the stories that you've heard to the lives that you've encountered today may you respond with God as you live uh, with your families alone as you live at work as you play, as you rest, as you serve, may you do these things with God. And may you be reminded that you are not alone, but that God is with you, that the the creator and the maker of the heavens and the earth is with you. May you be courageous this week because God is with you. May you be fearless this week, Because God is with you. May you be unafraid in however God uses you. Because you are not alone. Because you are not at your own devices. Because you are not using your own energy. Your own strength. But that God is with you. May you remember all week long. That the Lord is with you. That the Lord is in you that the Lord desires to use you. And we pray, Lord, that these things would be true for us, that we would live purposefully as if you are in us, using us, speaking to us. Have your way in this church as we scatter. Use us to be your people. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Would you thank God for John's ministry this morning? Thank you. The Kaisers will be downstairs. Our anti-human trafficking ministry will be downstairs as well. Have a great week, everybody. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next Sunday.